So glad you're here today. Uh, we know at least 150 or 200 Presbyterians are capable of laughing in a worship service. So I'm thankful that you're here. We're continuing our series. This is the second in our series on the book of James. Um, and uh, it is interesting to note that, oh, I meant to tell you, you can, uh, you can be turning to James chapter one. Uh, it's in page 1011. That's 1011 in your pew Bible. Um, if you want to use that, or you can look at the, at the words that will be projected up here uh, behind me in a few minutes. The only introduction that I, I want to repeat from last week, for those of you that weren't here, is that James, the author of this letter that we'll be studying, was the half-brother of Jesus. That is, Joseph was his earthly dad, and Mary was his earthly mother, and so James grew up in the same house with Jesus. And so he knew him in a different way than all the other writers of Scripture, with the exception of Jude, who was also a half-brother of, of the Lord Jesus. And also, at the time of this letter, James was the leader in the church of Jerusalem. And he's writing this letter for many reasons, but largely to encourage them because many of the Christians in Jerusalem had fled as much as 300 miles away, but out of the city because of uh, heavy persecution just for them being Christians. So that's sort of the context of this. And so he, he wanted to encourage them and instruct them to hang on to their faith in Jesus, who they knew was the risen Lord. He was a carpenter from Nazareth, but they came to know him as the Messiah and that he was killed on the cross and he came back to life. He appeared to 500 people at least. And he was, James was encouraging them, even through this difficult trial of being uprooted and having to leave their home uh, to hang on to, to Jesus, their Lord. So let's read the text. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13 and read through uh, verse 18. This is, the, this is the God-breathed, eternally true word of God. So we should pay very careful, very close attention to it. So let's start in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." That ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us in a way that we can read and understand in our own language. What a blessing. Lord, we pray that you would use this uh, to pierce our hearts, to encourage us where we need to be encouraged, convict us uh, where we need to be convicted. Lord, we pray that your will would be done uh, during 
this message while we're hearing from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife, Dina, and I uh, have been married 29 years, and in that 29 years, we've had all manner of reasons to exchange gifts, give each other cards, you know, every anniversary, every birthday, we, we give cards. Uh, for me, a lot of times, cards to get out of the, the doghouse. Uh, but through the years, I've used uh, the bulk of the times, almost every time, I've always used James 1.17 where I'll put it at the bottom of the card where it says every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord and I will say, you know, write on the card that next to God saving me, his best good and perfect gift uh, to me is, is you, Dina. And, um, and so that makes her go, aw, and it, and it blesses her. And I do mean it. I'm sincere when I say it. Um, this week, as I've chewed on this, this passage, it has become much more, uh, it, it does say what I thought it said, but it has become even, even more rich, even more meaningful uh, than I ever realized. And so I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I have. So first, we're just going to briefly discuss at least four uh, implications about sin and temptation from the scripture that we just read, and then we're gonna focus our attention on the greatest gift giver of all time, that would be our Father of Lights, and then finally, the greatest gift ever given, uh, the gift of gifts. Uh, so, we dealt briefly with this verses 13 to 15 last week, but I wanna go over it again, over some things that I didn't have time to mention last week because it's directly linked to what comes next. First, we're all tempted to sin on a regular basis. It's just a fact. Notice it says in there, not if we sin, but when. And I would argue that our being tempted to sin is something that happens almost constantly, regardless of the maturation of the believer. It's like when we're not mature, we're tempted because we're not mature. But then Satan works overtime when we start learning more and more about who the Lord is and what he's done for us. We're tempted. Second, I just want to warn us to, to not scorn or ignore this exhortation to not blame God for your sin. As if you would never do that. Because... Every time we blame our sin on a circumstance or on some other person, in essence, that's what we're doing. We need to fully embrace that that other person that caused us, caused us to sin or that that circumstance is completely under God's sovereign control and plan for our lives. So when we do that, we either are conveying to ourselves inwardly to God that he must have had a moment of weakness. He let his guard down a little bit because he was unable to prevent us from being tempted uh, by that sin. We're either doing that or we're, we're proving, listen to this, we're proving that we actually believe the power of that circumstance that caused us a sin or the power of that other person 
is greater than the power of our Lord Christ. Think about that. We're acknowledging that the power of their influence or the circumstantial influence on us is greater than God. Now, I've done that a thousand times and blamed others for my sin. And of course, it's foolishness. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Put in our everyday uh, vernacular, if we think we've got this sin thing whipped in any area of our lives, we need to be very careful because the Bible is telling us right there we're sure to fall. We shouldn't even hang around the fringes of sin. I see that all the time in my own life, in my family, even at this church with my brothers and sisters. We get so close to the edge of the cliff and because we shouldn't do that. Verse 12 strongly implies that we'll fall when we do that. And the next time you feel that blessed conviction of sin, I say blessed when we... I know you know what I'm talking about when you experience that little subtle sting of conviction. It's, it's blessed. It's blessed because if it weren't for that, we would just go deeper and deeper into sin, wouldn't we? Own your sin and be quick to confess it and repent it. Own it. You know how when you're at the dentist, they numb our mouths up, and if we're not careful while we're all numb, we'll bite our lip or bite our tongue, you know, and, and bleed. It's the same way in our walk with the Lord when our hearts start getting more and more numbed as we continue, if we have sin patterns in our lives. And if we don't deal with that, we're going to cause ourselves and a lot of times others all sorts of, all sorts of pain. And don't be like me with your sin. Don't try to t deny it or defend it. Well, I know I did that, but I, the reason I did that is... The uh, reason I said that is... Uh, deny it, defend it, dilute it. Okay, I did it, but it wasn't that bad. Or we deflect it. We just don't even want to... The four Ds, you know, we deny it, dilute it, deflect it, defend it. Don't do that. Own it. You are a sinner. You are a fallen, filthy sinner living in a fallen world saved by his glorious grace. I'm a filthy sinner. We're all sinners. We don't come to church because we're good. We come to church because we know that we're not good, that we're bad, and that he's good. Third, the steps leading up to sin that James is teaching his brothers and sisters should, in one sense, be heartening to us, should be encouraging to us, because if we recognize the progression early enough we can avert sinning sometimes. We can escape the temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And this isn't just, I started thinking to myself as I was writing this, is it just a flimsy um, optimism? You know, if we, if we recognize early enough that we're about to sin, we can resist it. But it's not a flimsy optimism. We just read in uh, 1 Corinthians that God will not put more on us. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to resist. And he'll also provide the way of escape. This next just sentence sort of daggered my heart this week as much as anything in this whole message. So if you're starting to snooze, wake up and listen to this. There are temptations too difficult for you and I to resist. But the Bible says he protects us from those. So we don't have an excuse. The Bible says in that verse I just read a minute ago in 1 Corinthians that he's faithful to not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. So we can't, you older folks, remember Flip Wilson used to say the devil made we do it. Well, we we can't say the devil made me do it. God made me do it because it says right in his word that he won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to resist. My sons and I went fishing the other day and we we experienced fish going through this progression. They were, they were lured and enticed by their own desires. And then when they just, when that temptation set in, they took the bait. And when they took the bait, sadly, for, for them at least, it ended in death uh, for, for them. And I, I don't say that, it, it's, it's kind of funny, but I don't say that to be funny as much as I do to to plant a mental image that when you feel that little, that little almost indiscernible sting of conviction about whatever you're about to say or whatever you're about to do or whatever you've been doing, don't, don't give in to it. Turn the other way and swim as fast as you can and don't take the bait. Fourth, the fact that James is directly teaching that no one should tempt God probably means that he had come across not no one should tempt God, no one should blame God for tempting them, probably indicates that he had spoken with someone who was saying that very thing. And you know, our first reaction, probably when you were sitting here this morning listening to that, you know, no one should blame God for their sins or accuse God of tempting them for their sins, you know, you and I probably go, you know, make a little grimace and, ah, oh, that's really not good. We shouldn't, none of us should accuse God of tempting us to sin. Or we might think it's kind of, it's so lame, it's kind of funny. You know, it's God tempting us to sin. Sort of ridiculous. But let me tell you, it's not funny. It's not funny. It's, a, it's an incredibly serious offense when we realize that they're talking about our holy God I mean if I was one of those yelling pastors I would shout that he has never sinned he has never been tempted to sin he will never and has never tempted anybody else to sin because he is God he is holy he is light the catechism says that he is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. 
in his being and wisdom and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. He's infinite and eternal and unchangeable in all those ways. We are the sinners. We are the ones 100% responsible for being tempted and yielding to it. But listen to this. Even when we sin, he loves us. When you mess up, he loves you. When you sin, he loves you. He's our great God. He sent his only son into the world to die for you and for me because of my sin and your sin and the sin of all humanity. James was keenly aware of how heinous this accusation was uh, against God. He had lived with, with God incarnate, with Jesus. He knew Jesus personally, and he knew how, how terrible it was. Even to this sinful, unholy pastor standing in front of you, it's, it's sickening to think about me or anyone uh, blaming God for being tempted. So James continues in verses 16 uh, through 18 along this, this path. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And there's more. But our, our second focal point, uh, just for these few minutes, is going to be about God himself, about the greatest gift giver of all time, even our Father of lights. And these first century believers that had scattered, that were being beat down by the circumstances of their situation, forgot who he is, as you and I forget. Today on the way home, I'll probably forget who he is when the light turns green and whoever's in front of me counts to like seven before they press their accelerator. He's eternally, perfectly holy. He's perfect in his sinlessness. He's perfect in purity. He is light. He is and has in his being resplendent, white hot glory. He is God. He is holy. We shouldn't trifle with our God. He invites us to immerse ourselves in his love, in his light. He gives us his light. He gives us himself. He gives. He's a giver. He gives us forgiveness. He forgives us his love. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Kistemacher, writes that James wanted all of the scattered believers to know this, and I quote, God does not send his children sorrow and grief to drive them from him. He gives them adversity so that they may come to him and rely fully on him. God has absolutely nothing in common with evil, for he abhors that which is not holy. Man can multiply the verbal and nonverbal accusations against God, but he ought not to do so. Listen to this. Instead, he ought to direct his attention to what God gives and who God is. 
God is goodness personified. He's the fountain of all that is good. The gifts God gives to his people are good and perfect, every one of them. Hence the name of this message is perfect giver, perfect gifts. You know, we don't usually make, uh, a lot of times we'll bring up one little point in the original uh, Greek, some nuance that's different than our English translation. I, I sort of stumbled across something this week in my studies that was a real blessing to me. I don't expect all of you to get as jazzed as, as I was when I saw this, but it, it's just a neat thing. It says in verse 17, it says, every good and perfect gift, every good gift, I'm sorry, every good gift and every perfect gift. And I want you to notice the the term gift is the exact same, right? Not only synonymous, but I mean, it's the exact same word, gift and gift. But that first phrase that I bolded is literally in the Greek, every giving good, every gift perfect. So the ending of that Greek word, that first word for gift shows progression. And the ending of that Second word depicts result. So the first word is talking about the act of giving. And who's doing the giving? God's doing the giving. His giving is perfect. And of course, his gifts are perfect. I just thought that was so neat. Notice James describes God as the father of lights. He uses this to illustrate God's absolute stability. That God doesn't change like shifting shadows. Nature subject to all kind of variation and change, but God, God is infinitely stable. His giving isn't good one time and bad the next time. You know, Hebrews 13, 8 says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in Malachi 3, uh, 6, I think, uh, God himself says, I, Yahweh, do not change. So first, we saw from our text that God has never, will never tempt anyone. And second, we focused on the greatest giver. And now let's look at this greatest gift, the gift of gifts. And that gift of gifts, the greatest of all his perfect gifts, is right here in front of us in verse 18. He brought us forth by the word of truth. This is the greatest gift of his own will not your will of his, not your parents will of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that's the greatest gift any human on this globe can ever or will ever experience that's that's the good news of the gospel that of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's an action on his part. He didn't toss something up in the air and hope that we would accept his love. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Imagine a young girl sinking. I, I saw in one of, the, one of the songs a while ago, it said about someone sinking in sand and and they were lifted out. But imagine a young girl sinking in quicksand, 
to her, to her death. And as soon as her hair, as soon as the last vision of her disappeared under that quicksand, that this strong man's arm reached down and grabbed her and rescued her and pulled her to safety. Did the man save her? Absolutely. Or, or actually, would it be more, what, was it his arm that saved her? Or was it the strength of his arm, actually, that saved her? You know where I'm going with this. Yes, it was all of that. And how much did she contribute to her rescue? Not a whole lot, did she? Our great God brought us forth of his own will by the word of truth. You and I were born into the quicksand of sin in this fallen world, but that's the great news of the gospel. He loves us. It's his own will that saves. It's his strength that saves. It's his word that saves. It's his will, his strength, his word. Any giving by our father is good giving. He's a father of lights. Any gift he gives is perfect. But remember in the Greek, every giving good, every gift perfect. But hang on a second. He gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. But was that, that wasn't, was that good giving? Please, somebody nod. Yes, that was good giving. God gives you trials. You're worried about something right now that you're going through in your life that nobody sitting around you even knows about or only a very few people know about it. He gives you those trials because he loves you. He allows you to go through those trials because he loves you. It's a love gift from him. He wants to draw you to himself. He wants you to rely less on your own strength and your own savvy and your own cleverness and more on him. God rescued us and saved us by the word of truth. Some of you Bible scholars don't say this out loud. I'm just rhetorically asking, what's the first verse in the Gospel of John? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit, this letter that James is writing is just bursting with, with meaning. We're saved when God brings us forth by the power of his Holy Spirit, by his inscripturated word, the Bible, by his incarnate son, even Jesus. James encourages these new believers to whom he's writing by describing them as first fruits. Because either because or probably both of these reasons, he knows there's going to be many more people to become believers. But also in that culture, the first fruits were sacred. They were, they were dedicated. The first fruits of any crop were dedicated to the Lord. And James is saying, you guys are first fruits. You're God's chosen ones. You're, you're the pick of the crop, as it were. Hang on to Jesus. Trust in him. 
Let's close by, I just want you to bask in light of, no pun intended, in light of the, so much being about the father of lights. Some of the songs we sang was about, were about light. Um, let's read John 1, 1 through 5 and just bask in John's beautiful gospel. Uh, musicians can start heading this way. They're not used to me being this, this quick. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And praise God, the darkness will never, ever, ever, a billion, billion years from now, the darkness will not overcome that light for all eternity. And all of us who trust in him will reside in that light forever. Lord, we thank you for being such a perfect, sinless, loving giver. Lord, thank you that when we deserve it the least, you opened our eyes and helped us know that we're sinners and that we need a savior. Lord, thank you for being willing to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.